you would like to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 5. We're going to be picking up in verse 33. It's on page 861 in the Black Pew Bibles, if you have one of those. Uh, So we've been following Jesus as he has been proclaiming himself to be the one who is sent by God to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And he has demonstrated his authority uh, over the natural world, right? Uh, He he, uh, cast out the fever, he healed the leper, the paralytic. He's also demonstrated his authority over the spiritual world by casting out demons. And ultimately, he has claimed for himself the authority to forgive sin. He has claimed for himself authority that only God has. And this is important for us because everything in this world that is broken or wrong in some way is that way because of sin. Everything that is broken in this world is that way because mankind is living in rebellion against our creator. And instead of submitting ourselves to his rule, we've attempted to make ourselves gods, right? To to lift ourselves up to the place of God. And this rebellion on our parts as individuals and and on our part as humanity has broken our relationship with our creator. It has broken our relationship with our fellow man, with our environment, and with ourselves as well. And so Jesus has claimed then, and he's backed up that claim, that he is the one who was sent to set everything right again. Now this is good news, right? This has to be good news. Everything that is broken and hurting and fractured will be healed and made whole and redeemed. But one of the things that we see consistently in the Bible is that this appears to only be good news for some people. See, while some, and I'm one of these people, can see the good news for what it is, for others, they find that those things that they desire, the things that they want, the things that they love, are those things that are broken, right? They they love their sin. And so Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. But this is a group who won't admit that they need finding. They won't admit that they are lost. They want to hang on to their love for money because it makes them feel important. They want to hang on to their anger because they feel like it makes them powerful. They want to keep their unforgiveness, their hypocrisy, their deceit. Because it's useful. It's comfortable. It's self-serving. They want to keep their sin because they find their identity, their sense of belonging, and their purpose in that sin rather than in their creator. And one of the groups that Jesus interfaces with in in the Gospels that runs into this problem is the Pharisees, right? So these were people who had taken the law that that God had given Moses, and they had distorted it. Right? The, the law was supposed to teach Israel to expect, to be looking for the coming Messiah, to be looking for blood to cover their sins, to be looking for the one who would provide for their every need. The law was supposed to teach them to be looking for their Redeemer. But the Pharisees had, had twisted it. They had taken the law and made it about earning God's favor by checking boxes and by staying away from people who weren't 
doing the right things. And so these Pharisees were approaching God in the wrong way. They were thinking that they were able to earn his favor by their squeaky clean living. This led to them separating themselves from the people around them. It led to them uh, having this sense of self-righteousness, viewing others as less and as unclean, viewing others as in the way, rather than viewing them as the law required, viewing them with love and with mercy and with compassion. And it caused them to view God as, as controllable, right? Small, petty, only caring about the people that could perform, rather than viewing him as merciful, rather than viewing him as being filled with steadfast love. And so the Pharisees, we saw last week, were were pitching a fit, essentially, about Jesus associating, dining with these sinners, these unclean people. And Jesus points out to them in in verse uh, 31, that those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, those people do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus is saying here that he has come to heal that which is broken by sin. And that means that he must be around those sinners. Because that is exactly who it is that he has come to seek and to save. So let's pick up in verse 33. And they, that is the Pharisees, said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fasts while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. We're going to pause right there just for a second. So we've got... We've got this idea of, of a bridegroom, right? Of a groom. There's a comparison to a wedding. And it's what Jesus is talking about here is that time when everybody is here, and everybody's just waiting for the groom to show up so that they could party. That's the idea. You've, you've been to one of those wedding receptions, right? Where the wedding happens and then there's like four hours before the reception starts and everybody's just kind of sitting around twiddling their thumbs waiting for the wedding party to show up. It's kind of the same idea here, right? Uh, Israel had been exiled from the promised land because of their sin. They had failed to do what God had told them to do, but there was a promise that God had given them that he would redeem them, that he would restore them. And so they're in that sort of, they were in that in-between period waiting for that restoration to happen. Uh, In Isaiah 62, God is talking about this through the prophet. And he says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, 
so shall your God rejoice over you. So speaking of the restoration of Israel, the bridegroom, that is God, rejoices over his bride, his people. And so he's using this this picture of a wedding day with God himself being the groom, the one who has sought out his people. So Israel was fasting and praying, waiting for that day, waiting for the restoration to begin, waiting for the bridegroom to, to arrive. And now, here, today, it's finally here. The groom has shown up. Jesus is here. And so Jesus says, it was right. It was perfectly 100% correct for them to be fasting before now. Because I wasn't here yet. They were still waiting. But now that I'm here, the party has started. There's no more fasting because the groom has arrived. See, all of the Old Covenant, all of the Old Testament was meant to prepare people for the coming of Christ. The ministry of John the Baptist that the Pharisees were talking about here was designed to prepare people for Christ. And so he has now come. The fasting, the waiting is over. He is here. They they should be rejoicing. And Jesus does point out there will be a time that this is not how it will be. There will be a time when my disciples are mourning. And we see this fulfilled, right, during that time that Christ spent in his tomb, between his crucifixion and his resurrection. His disciples mourned then because he was taken from them. But for now, now is the party because the bridegroom has arrived. And there's an important implication here as well. I don't know if you caught that. But in Isaiah, God compares himself to the bridegroom. And then here, Jesus compares himself to the bridegroom. And so if God is the bridegroom in Isaiah, and Christ is the bridegroom here, there is an implication. It's not outright, but there is an implication here that Jesus Christ is God. Um, Now this, this did not sit well with the Pharisees. Because his life, his ministry, his interacting with these sinners didn't fit with their preconceived notions of what it was that a man of God was supposed to look like. Didn't fit with what they thought a man of God was supposed to do. It looked different from what they were expecting. And in some ways, it should, because it is different. But at the same time, it's not any different at all. Uh, it's kind of like this. So my, my college degree is, in, um, is, is a tech degree, right? And so I went to school, and I was doing technology-related things. I was working as a programmer. I was doing some different things. And then once I graduated, things were different, right? I wasn't going to class anymore. I wasn't buying textbooks. I wasn't submitting papers. I wasn't getting grades, so to speak. But that difference wasn't a difference. It was a continuation. Because what came before, what was happening in those college classrooms was designed to prepare me for that career. Uh, And if you remember when you got your permit or your driver's license, you know, there's no fundamental difference between driving with a permit and driving with a license, right? I mean, the, the pedals are still in the same place, the shifter, the steering wheel. I mean, they all work the same way. And so there's continuity there. It's all the same thing. 
But at the same time, there's a pretty big difference. If you remember, I mean, for me, that was a pretty big deal. That was pretty awesome. Um, and so they are fundamentally the same. There's a logical continuation between the two. And one is designed to lead to the other. But at the same time, they are fundamentally different. There is a fundamental difference between being a college student and stepping out into the workforce. There is a fundamental difference between driving with a permit and driving with your license. And Jesus tells three parables then to illustrate uh, these, these differences. We'll pick up in verse 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And after drinking old wine, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. So we've got sort of these three word pictures that, that Jesus uses to help us understand what it is that he's talking about. I present to you for your consideration an old garment. This is, this is a coat that I've worn on a regular basis. Uh, apparently my skin is as caustic as my humor, and so I tend to wear uh, holes in it. And so you can see it's kind of falling apart and that the cuffs, it's, it's worn out and fraying. And if you look closely, there's oil and grease and all sorts of assorted food particles and stains. This is an old garment. It would be absolutely foolish for me to take this new-ish, just work with me, it's not brand new, but for me to take this new coat and say, I'm going to fix the collar on that old coat by cutting the collar off of this new one and sewing it on there, right? That, that would be utterly nonsensical. It doesn't work. It's not going to work. First of all, it's going to ruin this new coat. Because a new coat without the collar is no good. And you take that fleece collar and sew it on this cotton jacket, it's, it's not going to look right. It's not going to fix anything. You're making things worse by trying to do that rather than making them better. And so Jesus is emphasizing here that what he is proclaiming, what he is teaching, the truth that he has brought, is not a patch to be sewn onto the old garment of the Pharisees, but it's an entirely new coat. It's an entirely new thing. We see that also in the, in the wine and the wineskins. Now, when you, when you make wine, right, you take grape juice and you ferment it, uh, and the yeast in that process takes the sugar in the grape juice and turns it into alcohol. A byproduct of that chemical reaction is carbon dioxide gas. Long story short, when things ferment, whatever container they're in needs to be able to expand. It blows up like a balloon. And, you know, they didn't have rubber or glass or plastic or anything like that. So what they used was bags made out of animal skins. They'd put the yeast and the, uh, and the grape juice into these bags, and as it fermented, those bags would stretch, they would expand. But that's a one-shot deal. Right? Once that bag has expanded, it never goes back to its original size. Uh, and so if you tried to put new, unfermented wine in an old wineskin, it's going to burst it apart. The force 
of the gas from that chemical reaction is going to burst it apart, and it's going to ruin the wineskin, and your, your new wine is going to go all over the ground. And so what Jesus is, is telling them here is that what I'm bringing to the people, what I am bringing into this earth is new wine that cannot be contained by the structures that you are used to containing things in. And then he kind of shifts the, uh, the metaphor a little bit. He says, when somebody has, um, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. That when he says good there, that's good as in it's sufficient. Right? It's enough. No, I'm, I'm good. I don't need any new wine. What I got here in this cup is just fine. Because what you have and what you know, what you're used to, is what you're comfortable with. Now, the new may be better, but I'm, 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 I'm not going to risk it. Right? I'm going to stick with what I know. And we see this in how the people who have reason to be satisfied with the status quo, the people who are content where they are, uh, have always had a hard time understanding and responding to Jesus. Instead, what we see is that it's the poor, it's the broken, it's the busted up, the marginalized, the hopeless, who that Christ has always appealed most strongly to. Because it's that type of people who look at their lives and say, I'm done with that mess. I don't need that anymore. I don't want that anymore. Whatever it is that you're offering, Jesus, it's got to be better than what I got. We see this when people talk about dealing with addictions. If you want to deal with an addiction, in a lot of cases, you've got to hit absolute rock bottom. You've got to hit the point where you're ready to say, whatever it takes, whatever it costs, whatever is going to be required of me, I'll do it. I'll do it because I've been trying my way so far and it doesn't work. So I'm willing to try anything else now. And so you cannot take Jesus and patch him onto the Pharisees' Judaism. Because he's not designed to be a patch, to cover up a hole in that. But rather, he is the fulfillment of the law that they were claiming to follow. You cannot take Jesus and pour him into the old wineskins of their traditions. Because they cannot contain the good work that he has come to accomplish. And some of them will, will desire to stick with the old. Some of them will say, no, Jesus, I, I don't want what it is that you have. Because they are unwilling to give up what it is that they have devoted themselves to for so long. Now we, we all have some way of understanding and interacting with the world around us. Um, the, the way that some people will shorthand that is they'll say it's their worldview. Your way of, working at, of looking at the world, of understanding how it works. How do I fit into this? And that worldview is, is shaped by your upbringing. It's shaped by your life experiences. Uh, you know, some end up arriving at adulthood with a worldview that says, well, if, if I do good things, then good things will happen to me. Some people's worldviews are a little bit more warped. Some people arrive and say, well, never let anybody get too close to you or they'll hurt you. Never admit that you were wrong. Never admit that you made a mistake. 
Nobody else can be trusted. And a lot of us, unfortunately, go through life with the worldview that I am the most important person in the world. These worldviews are our old clothes. They're the old, torn, stained garments. But then Jesus shows up. He calls us to put aside our old clothes, put aside our old wineskins, our old wine, the old way of understanding ourselves in the world, and to understand the world in the way that he teaches, to drink the new wine, to use the new wineskin, to put on the new garment. But when we're presented with that choice, it's so easy for us to continue to choose the old wine. Because that's what we know. That's what's comfortable for us. We try to pour Jesus into the old wineskins of our old lives, keeping the same outward appearance, keeping everything else intact. I just want to change what's inside of it. But it doesn't work that way. It'll destroy the wineskin. And we try to patch Jesus onto our lives. Now, I'll take a little bit of Jesus and I'll put him over the pieces that are broken, over the pieces that are stained. But it's only when we have truly reached the end of ourselves that we are ready for something different, that we are ready for what it is that he is truly calling us to. In Matthew 5, one of the things that we learn as we follow that chapter through is that there is no hope for true redemption. There is no hope for full restoration without perfection. That's why he says in in Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be perfect. If you want to be part of the kingdom of heaven, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And if we do not have the ability to be perfect then we have no place in God's redeemed and restored kingdom. And this should cause us then to recognize the severity of our situation. It should cause us to recognize just how much trouble we're in. Isaiah wrote about this in in, uh, chapter 64 when he said, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds, all of the good things that we thought, that we were doing in this life are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. We are melting as individuals and as a society in the hand of our iniquities. We are carried away on the wind. And everything that we can try to do to prove otherwise is tainted in some way. All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We might be proud of what it is that we have accomplished. We might have done many right things. But pride, self-righteousness, stain just as deep as anger and violence. And so what we have then to clothe ourselves with is ripped up, torn, filthy rags. That's what we have. But Jesus didn't come to hand us a scrub brush and a bottle of Oxyclean. 
He doesn't just tell us, you've got to get that cleaned up. Isaiah saw forward to this as well. When he said, instead of your shame, there will be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has clothed me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations." God has taken the shame of the people, their dishonor, and he has given them garments of salvation. He has given them clothes of righteousness, giving them what they lack, giving them that which they could not make for themselves. This is what Paul is writing about in Titus 3 when he says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had a plan from before creation where God the Father would send salvation in the form of his Son. God the Son would earn that salvation in his life, death, and resurrection. And God the Holy Spirit would apply it to our lives, to our hearts, and in our lives. And so salvation is born then, not of blood, nor of the will of man, the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You don't earn it, you don't deserve it, but you are given it as a gift. And so we're called then to take off our old selves, to take off the coat that is stained and torn because of sin and receive from the hand of God a new coat. Not of your righteousness, not of your good works, but a coat that is comprised of the righteousness of Christ. Now they didn't understand at this point, how exactly this was all supposed to work. But we know now that he, that God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life, earned this perfect spotless coat that we could never earn, and he traded with us. He took our filthy rags, he took our sin upon himself, and gave us his righteousness, his clean coat. But that was not the end of it. That was not the end of it. Yes, he died. 
But in dying, he rose again on the third day, victorious over sin, victorious over death, and he is coming again to fully apply to us that which he has already earned for us. And he calls us to put on the coat of his righteousness. And when you do so, it's not like an army uniform where you get to pin medals on it for everything that you do right. It's not like a Boy Scout sash where you get a merit badge for you know, every time you come to church or every time you open up your Bible outside of Sunday morning. But you begin in the kingdom wearing the rank, wearing the coat, wearing the sash that Jesus has earned. You start in the kingdom where Jesus is as a son, as a daughter of the king. Now, to be sure, every one of us is still learning what that means, how that's supposed to be played out. Because remember, we were paupers. We were beggars. We were rebels and traitors. But we have been made by God's grace into sons and daughters of the king of kings. And that's true, but we forget it sometimes. We forget how it is that we are supposed to act. We forget what it means to be a son or a daughter. And we go back to acting the way that we did before. We revert to acting like a rebel, like a beggar. And so we are, by no means, I am by no means perfect. We don't have it all figured out. But we desire to be conformed to the beautiful new coats that we have been given. We desire to act in a manner that matches with the clothes of righteousness that God has given us. And it's hard. It can be very difficult. But the good news is that if we fail, if we fall, if we stumble, it doesn't get these new clothes that God has given us dirty. Because we haven't earned it by what we have done. So we cannot lose it by what we do. But instead, our salvation, our new coats, have been earned and fully secured by the life, and the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They are ours only by the free, undeserved gift of God. If, if we are willing to repent and believe, if we are willing to take off, leave behind that old coat, if we are willing to leave behind and repent of our old patterns, if we are willing to die to ourselves so that we may live to Christ and put on his righteousness and put on his flawless, spotless coat. And that is what he calls each one of us to do. And that is what we need to remember every single day as we walk through this world until Christ returns. To take off the old and put on the new. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift that you have given us in Christ. Father, we thank you that you have made a way for us to be free of the weight, of the stain, of the mess of our sin. 
the mess that we have made of our lives, the mess that we have made of this world. Father, we thank you. We thank you. We praise you for how, for how you have done this, for how you have made it possible for us to live clothed in the righteousness of Christ, wearing the coat of his goodness. Father, we thank you for your mercy in that. Father, we pray that as, that as we walk through this life in faith, we pray that as we walk through this life following you, that you would be at work in our hearts, that you would be at work in our flesh, that you would give us a desire to follow you in everything that we do, in every area of our lives. And Father, we ask that you would be giving us the strength to put to death the sin, the old man, the beggar, the rebel, the traitor, so that we may rise triumphant with Christ, triumphant over sin, triumphant over death, so that we may rise into his kingdom, into that new creation, restored, whole, remade, renewed, reborn. Father, we love you. And we look forward to that day. And we pray that it would come quickly. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our soon and coming Savior, that we pray. Amen.